From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. I'm a senior fellow at Family Research Council. It's my pleasure to be with you today on the program. Vladimir Putin remains on Twitter, but one member of Congress has been kicked off for violating their hateful conduct policy. We'll talk to her about what she said and what it means. Also today on the program, the Freedom Convoy continues its march across the country to Washington, D.C. We'll get an update from the road as they prepare to land in the nation's capital on Saturday. In addition, the Biden administration has some strong words for the governor and attorney general in Texas who say that chemical and surgical castration of minors with gender dysphoria is child abuse. What does the White House's conflict with Texas mean? We'll talk about that with former Trump administration official Robert Roger Severino later in the program. But first, the headlines today. Earlier today, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi said she's all for banning oil coming from Russia, something that Republicans have been pushing for but that the Biden administration carved out of the economic sanctions that were adopted against Russia. Now, Republicans, joined by some Democrats, point out that exempting Russia's single largest industry provides Moscow with hundreds of millions of dollars in cash revenue each day from the European Union, the United States, and the United Kingdom. But the Biden administration isn't planning to ban energy from Russia. Our objective and the president's objective uh, has been to maximize impact on President Putin and Russia while minimizing impact to us and our allies and partners. And I know you've heard me say this a few times before, but we don't have a strategic interest in reducing the global supply of energy. Uh, And that would raise prices at the gas pump for the American people uh, around the world um, because it would reduce the supply available. And it's as simple as less supply raises prices. Uh, And that is certainly a big factor for the president uh, in this uh, at this moment. It could also it also has the potential to pad the pockets of President Putin, which is exactly what we are not trying to do. That was White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki just a few hours ago. So would a ban on Russian oil imports really pad the pockets of Vladimir Putin? Here to talk about this and other developments in the Russia-Ukraine situation is U.S. US Congressman Chuck Fleischman, who serves on three subcommittees in the House Appropriations Committee, including the Subcommittee on Homeland Security and the Subcommittee on Energy and Water Development. He represents the 3rd District of Tennessee. Congressman. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph, it's always a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Well, it's good to speak with you. What's your reaction to the White House's statements that there will not be a ban on imports from Russia? It's disappointing. And I think, understandably, um, uh, people in Congress, in the House and the Senate, will probably try to persuade the Biden administration to take another look at this. Um, Let's face it. The world is properly outraged and should be outraged uh, by the horrific invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And we need to use every tool that we can, especially economically, to uh, disregard 
the Russian oil situation is a big, big mistake for Joe Biden. Uh, oil is a commodity. Uh, and as a commodity, um, the world reacts to it. Uh, wheat is a commodity. Natural gas is a commodity. Um, we have got to be strong, loud, and clear. Let's face it. Since the invasion, uh, Russia has stepped up their troops, stepped up the firing on civilian targets. We've got to be loud and strong and say no to Russian oil. Do you have a sense for how much of the United States oil supply comes from Russia? So if we were to, uh, what is that number? Uh, right now, we've been told it's 4%. Um, but remember, as uh, 4% of, of imports, and sadly, there was a time uh, I voted uh, in my tenure as a member of Congress to actually allow the United States to export oil. That was tremendous. A great vote, a proud vote. We were one of the world's largest exporters of oil under Donald Trump in a very short period of time. Now, because of the Biden administration's policies, we are dependent on foreign oil. We are an oil importer. That's outrageous. We need to ramp up domestic energy production. I think that's very clear. But to answer your question, it's 4%. But if we lead and we say no to Russian oil, other countries will do the same and put pressure, economic pressure on Putin to hopefully leave Ukraine, uh, because otherwise they're just going to continue on the path, sadly, that they're doing. It looks like they took over one city in southern Ukraine today. They're engulfing other cities. They're inflicting casualties. We need to be loud and clear about this. Now, I know that European countries depend much more heavily on Russian oil. Is it possible that the Biden administration is essentially just following the lead of Europe, who may not want to, to uh, have sanctions against Russian oil, and President Biden is simply following Europe rather than leading Europe? It's an interesting question. Obviously, Russia has abundant oil and natural gas, and you're right, European countries are doing that. But I look to the Germans as an example. Think about this. Uh, Germany canceled the Nord Stream pipeline. That was clearly against their economic interest, but they put morality and the need to sanction Putin for this outrageous conduct against Ukraine, against a sovereign nation. So I think it's so important to stand up and say no. Um, I don't know exactly what the Biden administration is thinking on domestic or foreign policy. Uh, we've seen huge debacles uh, in regard to both. Um, Biden needs to be stronger. Uh, I think the House and the Senate will be stronger in our resolve to deal with this. And ultimately, I think the Biden administration will wake up and be more draconian in its sanctions against Russia. Also, we need to look at the credit situation, the international banking situation. I'm glad to see a lot of private companies in the United States standing up against Russia. There is a universal resolve against Russia going into Ukraine. It's been loud and clear. It needs to be. It needs to be unequivocal. And as time goes on, it will get louder against what Putin has done. You mentioned Germany and the uh Unusual, maybe surprising steps they've taken. We've seen Finland, Sweden respond in ways that others didn't expect. Even Switzerland has come off the sidelines in this conflict and, and um, banned Russian bankers uh, 
and, and closed off access to accounts, Russian accounts in Switzerland. Are you surprised by the the solidarity and the severity of the response from the European community? I'm impressed by the solidarity. And Joseph, you're absolutely right. You take a nation like Switzerland, which uh, historically has prided itself in its neutrality uh, time and time again, even through some of our more uh, horrific conflicts in the past century, for them to stand up and to do what they did not only takes courage, they're right to do that. Uh, I will say this, uh, the Russians have greatly uh, underestimated and miscalculated the strong international resolve against their aggression in Ukraine. It's being heard loud and clear. Uh, there will be a very strong punitive response diplomatically, economically, and otherwise. So uh, I won't say surprised, I'll say impressed. Uh, for Vladimir Putin, this has become a politically incorrect war, and he's losing now, perhaps in, in an encouraging development, Ukraine and Russia, their delegations met together today. They agreed on the creation of a humanitarian corridor to get civilians out, humanitarian aid in. Is this a good sign that this might be able to be resolved? Anytime we can have a dialogue, I think it's a good sign. Obviously, I think Russia and the Russian people have realized that their leadership have gotten them into not only an unpopular war, a grossly unpopular war with horrific consequences for civilians. When you see over a million refugees streaming out of the country, it's, it's horrific. And all of the neighboring countries are outraged, as they should be. Our NATO members, uh, all 30 are outraged. So uh, that, that is a step in the right direction. Dialogue is very important, but I do think uh, the Ukrainians need to be loud and clear that Russia has got to leave their country uh, immediately and then seek to rebuild some of the damage that they've done to the infrastructure, to longstanding buildings. Even a Holocaust memorial was impacted by a missile strike. It's outrageous and it's wrong. And in that case, uh, very ironic, the fact that a Holocaust memorial would be struck uh, by a missile strike in this invasion. Now, when we hear about the creation of this humanitarian corridor, some of us are confused, and I'll include myself in this. Why would Russia agree to this? Because it seems pretty clear that humanitarian concerns are not at the top of their list right now. Are they still trying to maintain some kind of moral high ground here? It's another excellent question, Joseph. I think in reality... Russia has realized that they have put themselves and their nation in an untenable, unwinnable position. Even if they have gains militarily, they have lost the public relations war. They've lost the public opinion war. And they are receiving, justly so, international condemnation, not only from the United States, but from European countries, the European Union, NATO members, other countries, they realize that they're stuck in an untenable, unwinnable position. So uh, I think they're going to try to figure out how can they extricate themselves from this situation uh, and resume or at least maintain some semblance of international respect. Uh, but dialogue is, is one way to get that with the Ukrainians. Uh, maybe the issue of Ukrainian membership in NATO or not is some way that we can discuss 
this issue with them. But clearly, clearly, the magnitude of the damage caused, the death, the carnage, the destruction to uh, uh, infrastructure and other buildings, uh, as well as people in Ukraine, uh, has put Russia in a position that it can no longer maintain really much of an international uh, semblance of decency. They're wrong on this. They know they're wrong on this. The world knows they're wrong on this, and uh, they've got to try a way to negotiate their way out of it. President Zelensky has uh, spoken about what he thinks needs to happen to end this. Here's what he had to say. Let's go ahead and play clip three, and then I want to hear your assessment. You said you want to talk to Putin. You just no, no, I'm not. It's not about I want to talk with Putin. I think I have to talk with Putin. The world has to talk with Putin because there are no other ways to stop this war. That's why I have to. Congressman Fleischman, what, what's your reaction to that? I think he's absolutely right. Uh, I applaud Zelensky. I give him very high marks. I have not met with him. I met with Poroshenko, his predecessor, when I went to Kiev and spoke with the Ukrainians, as well as going to Georgia, where there is Russian aggression. They've taken over 20 percent of that country and stayed. But he's absolutely right. Uh, he needs to speak with Putin. They need to sit down, leader to leader, and basically find a way for Russia to leave as quickly uh, as possible and then to allow Ukraine to rebuild from this horrific attack and invasion on their country. But yes, it needs to happen as quickly as possible. And Congressman I think Fleischman, it's one on one. Yeah, we are out of time, but we really appreciate your time being with us. We'll talk to you soon. Stay with us. More Washington Watch when we come back. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The Center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org slash subscriptions. 
At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Glad that you have joined us. Earlier this week on Monday, Twitter locked U.S. Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler out from one of her accounts for allegedly, quote, violating their rules against hateful conduct. Now, what did she tweet? Simply this, that, quote, women's sports are for women not men pretending to be women, end quote. The people at Twitter say the Congresswoman's account won't be reinstated until she deletes that tweet. Meanwhile, the office of Russian President Vladimir Putin is free to tweet as he leads the deadly invasion of Ukraine. All of this begs the question, which is more hateful, opposing men participating in women's sports or bombing Ukrainian cities? Joining us now to talk about all of this is U.S. Representative Vicki Hartzler, who's a member of the House Armed Services Committee. She represents the 4th Congressional District of Missouri. Congresswoman Hartzler, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks, Joseph. It's good to be here. Well, it's good to have you. I guess the first question is, do you intend to delete the tweet? No, I do not. I'm not going to let the social media uh, liberal uh, woke group determine what is free speech in this country, what information can get out, and what needs to be censored. They should not be the arbiter of truth in this country, and I will not pull it down. Uh, I've told them they can have their Twitter account back. Uh, This is unbelievable how they continue to allow Vladimir Putin to tweet actual words of violence and and untruths, and just simply because I'm, as a former uh, track coach and an athlete myself, um, I'm speaking up for girls' athletics, and uh, they 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 silence me. I mean, it is it is wrong, and we've got to stand up to this woke crowd. I think this issue does highlight an important question that we're having as a country: what is hateful conduct? And th- their policy. And I'm going to read this because we I'm going to unpack this slightly. This is what Twitter says: is that you may not promote violence against threaten, or harass other people on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease, end quote. Now, you may not promote violence against, threaten, or harass. How is expressing the belief that men cannot become women a form itself of harassment or threats? 
It is not. It is not. And I'm just speaking up for female athletes all over this country that are having their dreams dashed and their opportunities for scholarships vanquished because of this wokeness, which is allowing uh, biological males who uh, decide that they think they are a, a female to participate in girls' sports. And we're seeing medals and uh, being taken away. In my ad, I, I point out the the most famous uh, example of this is the swimmer in Penn University who for two years competed on the men's swim team and then decided that he was a woman and now is demanding and is swimming on the women's team. And he is taking their medals, their records, uh, and it's just wrong. And we had 16 uh, girls on that swim team write an anonymous letter to the university and to the Ivy League championship before the championship last weekend and asked them to not recognize uh, him. But they said in their letter that they were told if they speak out on this, they would be kicked off the team and they would never get a job. Now, this is wrong. These are girls that have probably been practicing swimming since they were a little girls getting up every morning, going to the pool, uh, putting in long hours, dreaming of the opportunity to someday swim on a collegiate team, and then to have that opportunity, and then have all of their uh, goals dashed when a biological male on the men's team comes over and says, now I have to swim on your team, and I'm going to take your medals. It's, it's just wrong, and so I'm speaking up for them. I'm speaking up for common decency and for, I believe, common sense. And Twitter considers this uh, hate speech. It's just common sense. I think that the American public agrees with you. But how do you describe this disconnect that I think big tech and kind of the woke elites have with mainstream America in terms of the definition of hateful conduct? Because I don't think most Americans would view the expression, the belief that there are men pretending to be women competing in sports as inherently hateful. Now, you could say that in a hateful way, but it's in many ways not a, not a judgment. It's an observation, just what is. Why is there such a disconnect between what Main Street in America believes and what the elites running these uh, big tech companies believe? Uh, it's, I don't know. They just have bought into this liberal mindset that a very small percentage of individuals in this country um, are the, the, the arbiters of truth. And everyone else is, you know, not, uh, not in line with the, what they think is the, the new modern thinking. And if you hold conservative uh, Christian views on anything, or as I say, this is just common sense as a former track coach as well then you're silenced. Uh, so they're trying to silence us into submission with going along with their new agenda, with the, what they believe is now true. And female athletes are going to be left in the wake um, as a result of this. You know, years ago, Congress passed Title IX to ensure that females had equal opportunities in sports. And for many years, those who consider themselves feminists and others promoted uh, of feminism and women having equality, and uh, certainly I support women having equality in sports opportunities, and now that's not uh, popular anymore. This new uh, version of what truth has stepped up to be the, the uh, overriding uh, message that should be supported now, and I don't understand that, but I am proud of some 
uh, even liberal feminists who I may not agree on on other issues who are speaking up on this issue. Uh, and they are saying that uh, girls sports should be for girls. And so I've been pleased to see that, but many of them have been targeted and silenced by the woke social media as well. They have been attacked. So they're turning on each other. It's just uh, a crazy time. I often think of the children's book that I used to read to my daughter when she was little, but the emperor's new clothes. And I feel like we're living in that type of world again, where nobody is willing to actually speak the truth because they're afraid that they're going to be uh, criticized or made fun of or censored if they speak the truth. And so I'm not afraid to speak the truth. And just the Congresswoman simple, Hartzler? Yeah. Yeah. You are speaking the truth, but sadly, we are out of time for you to speak any more truth in this segment. <laughs> but we love this story. We appreciate your courage. And we will be in touch again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stay with us. More Washington Watch right after the break. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Finley Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. For more than a week now, we've been following the trucker-led People's Convoy as it makes its way to peacefully to the D.C. metropolitan area. And convoy participants have been providing us with updates along the way while also sharing with us what led them to join this growing movement to stand up against government mandates and overreach. For today's special Defending Freedom Convoy segment, I have with me now Anthony Cabasa. He's a correspondent with El American, who has been with the convoy from day one and reporting on its movements. Anthony, 
Welcome to Washington Watch. Hey, thank you. Great to have you. I think we have the connection there. Can you hear me all right? Yes, I can hear you just fine. Great. Tell us about your experience with the convoy so far. It has been amazing. We left Adelanto, uh, California, February 23rd, so Wednesday. We've been following it all the way uh, to where we are now, uh, arriving in Cambridge, Ohio. And then we are going to be uh, ending in D. It has been very peaceful. It's uh, 5,000 vehicles long. And we're, we're, we're getting ready to arrive in D.C. here this Saturday. Did you say that's 5,000 vehicles long now? That is correct. When we passed Oklahoma, counted all the vehicles of the convoy, and they said that it was upwards of 5,000 vehicles. And they're moving every day. That's quite a demonstration. We are having some, uh, some communication challenges there. We can pick out some of this, but we know that you are on the road. And so that is one of the uh, risks associated with broadcasting uh, from a convoy. But assuming we are able to still get this, a lot has happened since the convoy left the West Coast for Washington, D.C. Many states, many cities have dropped their mandates. Is the convoy encouraged by the developments even since it started? Okay, it looks like we are we are having technical difficulties there. We're talking to Anthony Cabasa, who's a correspondent with El American, and we're going to see if we can get him back. Do we have him back? Not quite yet. Okay, he is driving. He said right now he is in Ohio, part of a part of a convoy that about a week ago left California for Washington D.C. It's scheduled to reach the nation's capital this Saturday in protest of government overreach and the mandates. And the, and the last question I asked him was about these developments. And, and I have to assume that the people who are part of the convoy do feel somewhat encouraged by the fact that things are moving in the right direction. For me, it may have been the Super Bowl that kind of signaled the end of this as far as the public was concerned when you saw hundreds of thousands of people gathered in California, no less, basically not a mask in sight. And I think it was a good signal to the rest of the country that we are over this. Uh, in recent days, we've seen major cities, New York, Boston, uh, Philadelphia, cities who are doing away with their mask mandates for indoor uh, use, which have been in place for months and in some cases, maybe even years now. Uh, but the developments are good. Uh, the convoy continues to move. I'm going to check and see, do we have Anthony back with us? Okay, we're still working on that. So the schedule for the convoy, if you are in, uh, if you are in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, it will be arriving this Saturday. There's some been some nervousness in the nation's capital uh, around this. Um, if you're not in D.C., you may not know that for the State of the Union on Tuesday night, a fence was put up around the nation's capital, which is as as most things in Washington, D.C., are a bit of political posturing as the left continues to try to keep January 6th alive in the people's consciousness as they try to elevate the significance of that day. There was this sense that because we are going to have a State of the Union address, we once again will have to protect the people's house uh, from those angry, dangerous 
right-wingers. Of course, uh, there was really no threat to the Capitol, but there's been some conversation that we have to keep the fence up again in the event that this convoy gets to the nation's capital. Will they assault the Capitol? Of course, the answer to that is no, but that's the narrative in Washington, D.C., that these people coming from uh, from the West Coast being joined all along the way. It looks like we have him by phone again. Anthony, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Okay, great. This sounds like the connection is a little better. We have a little bit of time left. I was just talking about the uh, the concern in Washington, D.C., about what's going to happen once the convoy reaches the nation's capital. Uh, what's your response to that? Yeah, so I've actually talked to the organizers themselves, and they said that they have no intention to enter D.C. proper. Uh, this has been a peaceful demonstration throughout the nation. This was just to uplift people's spirits. Uh, they're, they're hoping to sit down with legislators. They have to legislators in D.C. to meet them outside of the, of the Capitol uh, to sit down and talk about what it is that they, they wish to achieve. Uh, but they have no intention to go into Washington, D.C. They will be hanging out in Virginia where they're going to be having a massive rally come Sunday. But they have no intention of going to the National Capitol. And that's because they know that what's, what's waiting for them. They don't want to fall for a trap. Anthony, we have about 20. Repeat of last Anthony, year. we got about 15 yes. seconds left. Is it successfully lifting people's spirits in your judgment? Absolutely. It absolutely is. Thousands and thousands of supporters across the nation have come out and support. Everyone's on board. Well, that is exciting to hear. And I think it is a good moment. We're seeing progress on this. Anthony, I do apologize for the technical difficulties, but we thank you uh, for taking some time to share us, share with us the update from the road. Godspeed to you. We'll see you in Washington soon. Now, coming up, uh, President Biden is speaking up against government overreach, but you might be surprised what kind. We'll talk about it. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. 
to access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted. Go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. A couple reminders for you as you try to stay in touch and up to date with what's happening in the world. You can get text updates directly to your phone if you text the word STAND to 67742. That's the word STAND to 67742. You never know when we're going to be deplatformed. So that makes sure that we can connect with you directly. Also, download the Stand Firm app, wherever it is that you get your apps. Type in Stand Firm. That gives you access to every edition of Washington Watch On Demand as well as a host of other FRC resources. If you type in Stand Firm, wherever you get your apps. Now, yesterday, President Biden issued a statement condemning what he called, quote, government overreach at its worst. Yes, you heard me correctly. A statement from the president condemning government overreach. So what was it that he was condemning? Well, it's efforts in the state of Texas to protect minors from dangerous drugs and irreversible surgeries on the unscientific theory that they were born in the, quote, wrong body. What can we draw from the Biden administration's recent statements about this issue? Joining me now to talk about it is Roger Severino, who served as the director of the HHS Office of Civil Rights in the Trump administration. He is currently senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Roger, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me. Well, so good to see you. Now, before we get into an analysis of what the Biden administration is doing, give us an update about what's happening in Texas. Well, the states are pushing back on the move to set a standard of care based on not science, but a transgender ideology that says that 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds can decide to never have kids again by taking puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and even surgeries. Children are not in a position to actually make that sort of life-altering decision. Kids are going through tough times that are uh, difficult enough. And you don't want to have folks, including sometimes parents, pushing children into these lifelong, life-altering decisions when they simply do not have the maturity to decide that. And the Biden administration has tried to impose that as a standard of care, saying it needs to cover in insurance these sorts of transgender surgeries and as well as puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. And states are pushing back. 
the states, uh, including Tennessee and Arkansas, have had legislation making sure that this is based on science and in, in some cases prohibited these sorts of surgeries on children. And the state of Texas issued an attorney general opinion saying that it could actually constitute child abuse if, in fact, it is done to sterilize a child that does not have the capacity to make that sort of life-altering decision. Again, the science is not there to support this sort of intervention in children when you have up to 90% uh, plus of folks where the issue resolves in children if they are just left alone. If puberty takes its course and if they have the proper support, then the issues of gender dysphoria resolve and you don't need to have these permanent life-altering surgeries or hormones. Now, Roger, how could, you talked about the capacity, and this is an interesting issue because we're dealing with minors, and there are, of course, many things that minors cannot consent to. Is there a scenario in which, uh, un, uh, by in, in legal ways, a child could consent to have this done and have that be appropriate and proper? Well, we've seen that in Europe, they've pulled back on these sorts of permanent surgeries on children. And hopefully we're gonna see that there's a movement away from it, especially in kids. Again, they are not in a position to make this decision on their own, similar to things like having an abortion. You need to have the parents involved because they are in the best position to see and find out what it is that is in the best interest of the child. There are very few instances where the parents do not have the ability to be the ones that make the shots, to call the shots about their children's health. Um, whether it comes to whether they could receive an aspirin in school, you need parents, parental permission. Children do not have the capacity to enter into legally binding contracts because they don't have the capacity to make those sorts of decisions. So we have to be very careful when it, call it, when it involves children. And the states are now making, making a statement saying, leave the kids to develop on their own, let nature take, take its course. When you're an adult, you're in a much different position to say what you want to do with the rest of your life uh, when you have issues dealing with gender dysphoria. But when the risks are so grave and all the, the hormones are off-label usage, they are not approved by the FDA for gender transition. We are experimenting on our children, and this is a dangerous route that we need to push back on. And especially the Biden administration is going full bore. Dr. Rachel Levine, who seemed to deny support for these sorts of surgeries on kids, has come out in support, tweeting against the state of Texas for doing what it's done to protect children. And for those who may not recognize that name, Dr. Rachel Levine identifies as transgender, so has made this a a, a, a passion issue um, personally, the, which is what... Yeah, this is the Secretary of Health for the Department of Health and Human Services. The top doctor for HHS, essentially, is now on board with these permanent life-altering treatments that sterilize children, and that's just sad. Which certainly has something to do with the reason the Biden administration has been so aggressive about this issue. Now, I want to talk specifically about that and what the administration is doing, but I also want to play some remarks that he made in his State of the Union about this issue. Let's go ahead and play clip five. The onslaught of state laws targeting transgender Americans and their families. It's simply wrong. I said last year, especially to our younger transgender Americans, I'll always have your back as your president so you can be yourself and reach your God-given potential. Roger Severino, what's your reaction to that? Well, if he truly cares about children, he will support them in sometimes difficult circumstances. You let nature take its course and you do not sterilize children before they have the capacity to make that sort of life-altering decision. 
imagine a 12 or 13 year old child put in a position to say whether or not they ever want to have kids of their own. Think about that. You do not want to put a child in that sort of circumstance. Even the, uh, the leading transgender advocacy groups are saying you should wait till after 18 for the surgeries. That should also apply to puberty blockers um, because we don't know all the full risks. We do know there are certain risks in terms of bone structure and bone density, increased risk of all sorts of bad life outcomes that the state of Texas cited in its reports. And these are acknowledged by LGBT advocacy groups. Uh, Fenway Health was one that was cited. That They list all the different possible complications that could come from these experimental treatments. And you don't want to do it on kids. And that's ultimately the bottom line, to protect our children. Now, this administration is ignoring that. And it has moved mm -hmm. to make it an essential health benefit in insurances on the exchanges under Obamacare. They're moving in April to issue a rule under an anti-discrimination provision to say that all insurance must cover it and all doctors must perform these transgender surgeries that remove healthy, perfectly fun functioning reproductive organs. And there's no exclusion for children. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, is, that is just bad policy and not required by the law. But people need to be aware that our federal government is moving headlong on a crash course to do this when the states are now pushing back and the science does not support taking these risks. And the reason this is important, of course, is because there's lots of data showing that children who experience gender dysphoria generally outgrow it once they go through puberty. It's, it's upwards of 80% of children. So what you're doing is, is you're sentencing, essentially, uh, children who don't have the chance to go through puberty to, to a future that they otherwise would naturally avoid. Now, there's one point of agreement I think we have with the Biden administration is that we do want to see uh, young people, including young people who struggle with gender dysphoria, reach their God-given potential. The differences that we have is what does that look like? Does that mean surgically modifying your body and changing your body so it can uh, at least temporarily uh, fit with your mind? Or does that mean helping your mind conform to what your body tells you about reality? And those are just very different approaches. Now, uh, Politically speaking, this is very interesting uh, because the Biden administration, after the press con after the State of the Union, excuse me, on Tuesday night, not only did President Biden issue a statement, but also HHS Secretary Javier Becerra also also issued a statement. And this is like prime time. There's a real big opportunity after the State of the Union to kind of drive home some of your major points. And it seems that the Biden administration has seized that moment and the capital that they have spent in that moment is not on economic development. It's not on dealing with COVID. It's not dealing with inflation. It's not even dealing with Ukraine. It's pushing back against Texas on these transgender laws. Why is it that th this issue for this administration gets so much attention? Well, Javier Becerra is a perfect example. He's ideologically driven. He did not have a background in public health, yet he was still appointed to the top health position in the country as Secretary of Health and Human Services. It made no sense. It came out during the confirmation hearing that he did not have the qualifications to be leading this country during the pandemic, and it has shown. The number of deaths now, daily, are higher than they were last year at the same time um, of the year. It is just inexcusable that he has been AWOL during the pandemic yet laser-focused on LGBT issues, on abortion, on pushing back on the states that are working to protect kids. That was his background. When I was the director of the Office for Civil Rights under Trump at HHS, I found him to be the one that was liable for violating conscious protection laws, 
for requiring forced abortion coverage in insurance in the state of California. Cost him $200 million in Medicaid funds. And now he's the head of HHS and in charge of the Medicaid fund. And it's, it's uh, elections have consequences and we get the wrong people in these positions at the wrong time. It will have devastating consequences for both the country in terms of public health and also the rule of law. It just is, it speaks volumes that he has dedicated so much of his effort and staffed so much of his office with people that are ideologically driven on these issues when we have the pandemic that is really the one that it's affecting people most. Roger, is there a chance that they prioritize this issue because they think it's a political winner? No, it's because they're responding to their base. The loudest voices that are on the left have not gone away. They've taken the driver's seat on these issues, and there's going to be a backlash, I'm sure, and that's what you're seeing with state after state pushback. To think that the president of the United States had to dedicate time to discuss this issue when there's so many things going on in the country, it shows that he is playing to his base that brought him into office. And unfortunately, despite whatever pretensions that Biden put out as being some sort of a moderate, he is not. He is beholden to the far left of his party and especially on the social issues. The culture war continues. And in fact, it has gotten worse. He has not united us. He has driven wedges and it's, and it's, our children should not be pawns in this fight yet they've become so, and that, that is a, a tragic consequence. This is not games. These are real children's lives that are at stake that could have long-term, lifetime consequences, and states are stepping up, but the Biden administration is saying that they won't be able to. And they'll eventually, if this equal rule is promulgated, threaten to cut off their funding, Medicaid, Medicare, all of it. So people need to be aware and comment when the rule comes out, Section 1557, let your voice be heard. That, that is the, the way the Democratic voice can actually be implemented by commenting on these regulations coming down the pike from this administration. We're talking to Roger Severino of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Now, Roger, we know that parental rights has become a big issue nationally. Uh, most people think that it flipped Virginia from a blue state to a red state, helped Glenn Youngkin get elected there. We've seen activism at the school board level across the country, parents trying to take their play, their rightful place back as the guardians of their children, of their children's education. Uh, however, or in addition to, the left seems to be seizing that issue on with respect to transgenderism and saying, this is an issue of parental rights. And, they, and there are, of course, some parents who are supportive of their minor children transitioning. Do you think it's true that the government has no place having a position uh, with respect to a minor if their parents are okay with it? No, the government always has the duty to protect public health, and it has to be balanced with parental rights. Absolutely. And what we saw in the COVID debate was kind of the flip side, where you had government go so far into masking children in schools when the risks really were not there to them and take away the parents' rights. Same thing on the transgender issue in schools in Virginia that you alluded to. There was a student who identified as female that was allowed to go into female safe spaces like bathrooms and sexually assaulted a young girl. The father got mad, raised the issue with the school board that denied this was even a problem. They shuffled this student, who was, again, biologically male, to another school who then sexually assaulted another girl. So again, the the issues are, are real and the parents need to be involved at every step. There has there's definitely a role for the public to play when these are lifelong issues. Um, so there's a role for doctors, there's a role for parents, 
There's also a role for states to have the freedom to step in to protect children, uh, like the state of Arkansas, Tennessee, and now what Texas is doing. There's always that, that role. Sometimes parents are not acting in the best interest of the children when it comes to health care. There are limits even on religious freedom, right? If a parent says, hey, I don't want my child to get a blood transfusion, uh, the state can step in and say, I'm sorry, the, the child's life is, is uh, more important in this case. So there are instances that, in fact, the government is justified in saying this is too far because it is too dangerous. Again, this is off-label experimental uses with permanent consequences with respect to sterilizing children. That's what it's about. And we have to take a deep breath before we take that step. Roger, we got less than a minute left. We know that a court actually stepped in this week and prohibited the state of Texas from investigating a particular family dealing with a gender transition. What's the future of this issue in Texas? Does it survive legally? It's going to go to the courts. Again, any of these contested hot button issues are going to go there. Uh, and I, at the very least, I will hope that the courts will say you can't compel people, doctors, to perform these surgeries. You can't compel people to pay for them. And then whether or not it is the standard of care, do states have the, do states have the primary authority to say what constitutes good medicine or not? They're the ones who license doctors. So that's going to be what the issue is at stake in these decisions. And again, it'll ultimately end up in the courts um, to deciding it. I am hopeful that the states will be given enough room to be able to say what is you. safe and not. For your vigilance, Roger, we are unfortunately out of time, but it looks like you are someplace beautiful, and we'll let you get back to that. Thank you for taking some time for us. That's our program for today, folks. Thanks for being with us. Remember, fear God, nothing else. We'll see Washington you next time. Watch with Here. Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 